0: So we continue looking at the letters to the churches. We'll look at the third letter today. If you have your Bibles, turn to the second chapter of the book of Revelation. But when you think of the book of Revelation, what's the first thing you think of? We think of end times, don't we? We think of those horrible and sometimes even weird, bizarre events that occur just before the second coming of Jesus Christ. We are struck with fear and anticipation, excitement, all at the same time, aren't we? But when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior in the mid 70s, long time ago, I was first attracted to Christianity because of end times. Any of you here ever hear of a book by a guy named Hal Lindsay called The Late Great Planet Earth? Nobody? Okay, there we go. This was my well-worn copy It postulated that due to certain clues in the Bible, Jesus was going to rapture his church very soon in the decade of the 70s. He was wrong. By rapture, it meant that Jesus would take all the believers out of the world to heaven. And immediately following that, there would be this event called the tribulation that would last seven years. And it would be a time where God would redeem the Jews as a nation back to himself but also judge unbelievers for their unbelief. Well, these awful tribulation judgments that Revelation describes was enough to scare me toward Christianity. And it was the same for many who were caught up in the late great planet Earth phenomenon. Thankfully, by God's grace, I really wasn't scared into Christianity. But the terribleness of the end times and what was about to happen had gotten me to think about my life, my destiny, think about God, enough to come to grips with the fact that I was a sinner and I could do nothing about my sin to appease God, to realize that Jesus Christ died to take care of my sin problem. And so, in an indirect way. I am thankful to Hal Lindsay, as many who became believers in the 70s are. Now, as a Bible study teacher, I have taught from the book of Revelation a few times. Perhaps the most fun I ever had teaching it was when Paul Reed and I co-taught it in the Sunday morning Bereans class. There are many opinions on God's timetable for the end times, and Paul and I had similar but differing ideas. And so it was really great fun to present a couple of viewpoints. But as my walk with the Lord has progressed through all of these years, do you know my favorite portions of, of Revelation are? First and foremost, it's Revelation chapter 5. We just sang about it. The scene is in heaven and all of God's creation is worshiping God It's an incredible picture of what heaven will be like when we get there. Listen to this. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It's incredible. Picture it. My second favorite portion of Revelation, then, is where we have landed in this series. It's the seven letters given by Jesus to John to deliver to seven different churches in Asia Minor. Yeah, the end time section in Revelation is important, and it must be taught. We teach all of Scripture, right? But these letters hit home. Today, we must heed them. For they not only speak to the churches of John's day, they speak to us. And as we read these letters, we need to ask ourselves, as a church, as individuals, do we live in such a town? Well, this morning we come to the third letter that Jesus gives to John. It's the letter to the church of the city in Pergamum. Well, let's first read the short letter, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So that's the letter. Well, let's first give some context to this letter. Whenever we study the Bible, it is important to first understand what the writer was saying to the readers of his day, the first people who would read the letter. What did it mean to them? From that, we can then determine what the words say to us today. So who's the recipient of the letter? It says the angel of the church in Pergamum. Well, this is most certainly meant to refer to the senior elder or senior pastor of the church. And because it is written to the leader of the church, it is meant for the entire church body to hear. Who writes the letter? These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. This is Jesus. As we said before, he's instructing John to pen the words of these seven letters. John is merely serving as a dictation machine. Now, in each of these letters, it's interesting, Jesus is described a little differently. Some of the descriptions are positive. They're encouraging. Some are negative. Well, How is Jesus described here? He's described here with a sharp two-edged sword. Now that could mean that it's referring to the Word of God, and we'll come back to that. But it also, if you page forward to Revelation chapter 19, you will see at this point Jesus has returned. This is his second coming. And he is going to strike down the nations with a sharp sword. This two-edged sword then is used for judgment. It's used for execution. The church at Pergamum better hang on to their seats. The message coming is not a promising one. But not only is this a language of judgment, it's a language of war. Jesus is about to wage war. And we will soon see what kind of war is being waged in this city. So let's take a look at the city, the city of Pergamum. It sat about 100 miles from Ephesus. It was slightly inland from the Aegean Sea in what is now part of Turkey. Greece is on the other side of the Aegean Sea. And at the time... Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor and had been for 300 years. So, this is an important city. The word Pergamum means parchment. And parchment is what is used in making scrolls. So, parchment was developed in this town. There was a university here and a huge library. So, the town was well known for its intellectuals and its academics but it was also a center for pagan religious worship. There were many statues to many gods there, and you were encouraged to pick your god to worship. And in fact, even encouraged to pick a mixture of gods to worship if you so chose. And so in such a city sat this young Christian church, called on to worship the one true God and only him. There's no indication in the Bible how the church started, but it likely happened as Paul passed through that area during the narrative of the book of Acts, somewhere around chapter 16. By chapter 19, it says that Paul's ministry in nearby Ephesus, kind of his hub of operations, had reached all of Asia Minor. So certainly Pergamum existed then. But of all the new churches in Asia Minor, perhaps this little congregation faced the greatest persecution of all. After all, verse 13 tells us that Pergamum is where Satan's throne sits. You're in Satan's headquarters, Jesus is saying. And so Jesus first gives this little church a commendation. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Yes, you are in Satan's center of operation, but you have held fast to my name, and you have not denied me. True faith, Jesus is telling them, is indestructible. He references Antipas. Tradition tells us that Antipas was one of this little church's first pastors and was martyred by being burned to death inside of a brass bull. He'd been called upon to compromise his Christian beliefs, but he would not. He'd rather die. So, Jesus first commends Pergamum, yet it wasn't easy. And some were succumbing to the temptations of living in the city where Satan was so present. And so in his letter, Jesus not only commends them, he condemns them. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. How sad. So many had been faithful in the face of intense persecution. Yet others were weakening under the attack. And I would say that even the faithful had become soft and tolerant, allowing those weaker in the faith to feel comfortable where they were. Here's where we find out what kind of war Jesus is waging. One commentator says it this way, Here, a pitched battle is being fought in which the soldiers are not men, but ideas. The church in Pergamum is in a battle for the mind. Now, Jesus refers to the teachings of Balaam and to the Nicolaitans. Well, who are these guys? False prophets. Balaam is a false prophet found in the Old Testament who persuaded Israel to disobey the law and to act immorally. The Nicolaitans were simply the New Testament equivalent. They were convincing believers that as long as they believed in the saving grace of Jesus Christ, well, any and all behavior was okay. Interestingly, Balaam in Hebrew and Nicolaitan in Greece mean the same thing. Conqueror of the people. Both were an abuse of grace, pure and simple. They attempted to turn freedom into license. Anything goes. All behavior is okay. The church at Pergamum represents a confused church. As believers, those who should be influencing others had become the influenced. The leaders in the church had abdicated their responsibility to confront and correct, in love, those who had compromised their faith. Well, how did this church get into such a situation? letter doesn't tell us. There may have been an accumulation of reasons. Perhaps they had become tolerant. That's a popular term in today's society, isn't it? But hear what Daryl Johnson, who has written a great commentary on Revelation, says. Tolerance is not a biblical virtue. Patience is. Understanding is. Civility is, graciousness is, mercy is, humility is, but tolerance is not. For, he says, what is the first word of the gospel? What was the first word out of Jesus' mouth as he begins his public ministry? It's the word repent, change, don't accept any behavior, be intolerant in love of behavior that grieves God. So maybe they had become tolerant. One other reason is sure. The church at Pergamum had set aside God's word. The Bible had become unimportant to them. It had been put on the shelf, left there, and it was collecting dust. And it had created a people and a church who were confused and compromising. And here, my friends, is the centerpiece of this message. I want us to turn to Psalm 119 now. If you have your Bibles, turn there. This Psalm is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's 176 verses. Amazingly, 169 of those 176 verses refer to the Word of God in one way or another. It uses different terms to describe the Bible. The law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, promises. Listen to a portion of it. Verses 129 to 136. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long... For your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears, because your people do not your law. This is a love poem, my friends, to the Word of God. Psalm 119 tells us that the Bible makes no mistakes. It can be understood. It cannot be overturned. Is the most important word in your life and is the most relevant thing you will read today, tomorrow, and the rest of your days. So let's see what Psalm 119 tells us about God's Word. We finally get to your outline. You probably were wondering. First of all, what Psalm 119 tells us about the Word of God is, that we, is what we should believe about the Word of God, what we should believe about it. First, we should believe that what God's Word says is true. It's true. Psalm 119, verse 142, insists it's altogether true. Psalm 42 tells us it can be trusted, all of it. You can't trust everything you read on the internet, right? You can't completely trust your professors. You can't trust politicians. Facts can be manipulated, photos photoshopped. But God's word is firmly fixed says verse 89. There is no limit to its perfection, verse 96. So if you ever think to yourself, you know, I need to know what's true. What's true about me? What's true about people, about the world, about the past, the future? What's true about God? Then come to God's Word. It's true. We need to believe it. Believe God's Word is true. Next, we should believe what God's Word demands is right, that it's right. The psalmist here gladly acknowledges God's right to issue commands and accepts these commands as right. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. Verse 86, they are sure. Now, if you're like me, sometimes you come across a command in the Bible that you don't really like all that much, right? And often, even though we don't like it, we obey it just because God says so. I'm asking you to tape it one, take it one step further. Learn to see the rightness in all of God's commands. Love what God's, God loves and delight in what He asks of us because it's true, because it's right. And then finally, we should also believe what God's Word provides is good. Not only is it true and it's right, but it's good. Verses 1 and 2, the Word of God is the way of happiness. Verse 6, it's the way to avoid shame. Verse 9, it's the way of safety. Verse 3, the way of hope. Verse 130, it provides wisdom. God's Word is unfailingly perfect. And rest assured, God doesn't give orders to that we might be restricted or miserable. He gives them so that we might be free. And so that's what we should believe about the Bible. It's true, it's right, it's good. How should we feel about the Word of God? We can't stop at only what we believe about God's Word. We must consider how we feel about it. And the psalmist has three fundamental affections for God's Word, the same that we should have. First, we should delight in it. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 24, they are my counselors. There's real emotion here in the words coming from the psalmist. Verse 103, your words are sweeter to me than honey to my mouth. Now, some will say, you know, I'll never love the Word of God like this. I'm not an intellectual I don't listen to sermons all day. I don't read all the time. Yeah, I get that. But I'll bet there are times you get passionate about words on a page, don't you? A will. An acceptance letter. A check with a bunch of zeros on it. We love to read stories about those we love. We love to read about greatness, beauty, power, We pay attention to words of warning, even if it's a street sign. Well, haven't I just described the Bible? It is a book about us and those we love. It is a book that expresses great benefits to us and words of grave warning. And it is the book that brings us face to face with Jesus Christ, the one person who ever lived who possessed all greatness, beauty, and power. Now, I'll admit it. There are times when the Bible can feel kind of dull. When I'm slogging through Leviticus, I'm trying to get through it as fast as I can. But we need to remember this one important thing. This is the greatest story ever told. All of it. And those who know it best are those who delight in it the most. And here is my plea for you. Learn to fall in love with the Bible. Learn to fall in love with it. And if we learn to fall in love with God's Word, we will desire it. We will long to keep the commandments of God. Verse 40, I long for your precepts. We will desire to know and understand the Word of God. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law. Our lives are animated by desire, aren't they? It's what gets us up in the morning. It's what we dream about. It's what we pray about. We have strong desires related to marriage, children, jobs, promotions, houses, vacations, recognition, even revenge. Some are good. Some are bad. Well, how strong is your desire for God's Word? For the psalmist, it was so strong that he considered suffering to be a blessing in his life if it helped him become more obedient to God's commands. And then thirdly, we should depend on God's Word. The psalmist is constantly aware of his need for God's Word. Verse 31, I cling to your testimonies. Verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Amos in the Old Testament talks of a time in Israel where there was a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. My friends, there is no calamity like the silence of God. We cannot know the truth or know ourselves or know God's ways or savingly know God himself unless God speaks to us. And he speaks to us through his word. Okay, then. That's what we should believe about Scripture. That's how we should feel about it. What should we do then with the Bible? We are, to be, we are called to be doers of the Word and not just hearers only, right? Yes, we must believe it. We must feel it. But it should lead to action. Psalm 119 is filled with action verbs illustrating exactly what we should do with God's Word. And real quickly on your outline. We should speak it, we should study it, we should store it up, we should obey it. Speak it, study it, store it up, obey it. Now these actions are not substitutes for proper belief and proper feeling, proper faith and affection, but they are the best indicators of what we really believe and feel about the Bible. Bible. Now, don't panic if you sense that you're falling short in this believing and feeling and doing. Remember, Psalm 119 is a love poem. It's not a checklist. But when we follow these things, believe the right things about Scripture, feel the right things, do the right things, we find ourselves leaving the town of Pergamum. Ephesians 4.14 describes those who have relocated away from this city. As a result, it says, We are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Now this word doctrine kind of screams out, doesn't it? It's kind of scary, isn't it? That's something the theologians need to worry about. But Ephesians here is telling all of us to understand doctrine, which is just another simple word for truth. That's what it means. He's telling all of us to understand truth, to avoid the trickery of men and deceitful teaching. It's telling us we need to move out of Pergamum. Now rest assured, when God commands something of us, as he is doing here, that there is one important truth. God will never set you up for failure. Sure, most of us will never reach the level of understanding doctrine like the theologians do. I know I never will. But God makes a promise to all of us. In Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. God is promising here that his word will never return void. That all who study it will profit from it and will begin to move out of Pergamum to a place where false teaching, such as those like Balaam and the Nicolaitans and even today's false teachers, cannot hurt us. The church at Pergamum was facing Temptations to stray from the truth, probably unlike any other church of their day. Their failure was to know what truth was, and it made them vulnerable. It made them confused. It made them compromising. Now today, we face similar temptations, don't we? Maybe those temptations are unlike anything this country has faced in its history. Maybe but i'm telling you my friends in the 2000 years of god's church it's been the same it's always been the same there's always these temptations to close and to illustrate this turn to 2nd timothy chapter 3 2nd timothy chapter 3 paul wrote timothy who was writing a farewell letter to timothy who was his right-hand man Paul is about to die, and he knows it. He's in prison, he's about to be martyred, and so he's writing what he considers a farewell letter to Timothy, and he's warning him of godless days to come. Verse 1. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. There's a list. Any of that sound familiar? Worse yet, Paul goes on to say in verse 12 that it's not going to get any better. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, he says, will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Well, Paul, thanks for that downer. What are we supposed to do, Paul? How do we move out of this city of Pergamum, Paul? Paul? Well, the Master Paul never goes without giving an answer, and he gives us an answer in verse 14. Listen carefully. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Know from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with what? The sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For... All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture. It's the passport out of Pergamum. We'll back quickly to Revelation chapter 2. If we repent, if we change, Jesus is saying, if we continue in what we have learned from the sacred writings, Jesus promises us three things, hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. Well, what on earth are those? Well, you remember manna, right? That was the food God gave to the Israelites when they wandered in the wilderness. I think it was angel food cake. But in this context, it really is spiritual manna. And 1 Peter helps define what that means. 1 Peter commands us to long for the pure milk of the word. The manna is scripture. Long for it. Long to understand it. But what is the white stone? Interestingly, in the first century, when an athlete won in the games he was given, as part of his prize, a white stone. And this white stone would then serve as an admission pass to the winner's celebration that took place afterwards. And so I think the picture here is that at the moment when a Christian overcomer uh, will receive their ticket to an eternal victory celebration in heaven. The new name? Maybe it's a personal message from Christ to the overcomer, so personal that only the person who receives it will know what it is. So learn to love God's Word. Fall in love with the Bible. Hunger for it. Take your Bible off the shelf and read it. Study it. Seek to understand it. Put a Bible app on your phone and make it your favorite app. Store up the Bible's words and learn to speak them. Include them in your vocabulary so that they become part of daily living and thinking. Let's win this war for the mind. The move out of Pergamum, yeah, it may be a gradual one, but it will be joyful. It will be fruitful. It will be profitable. It's promised let's pray father you have given us an incredible gift of your word it yes we see the revelation of who you are in your creation we can look around and see that this is a created world and Lord we praise you for that and yet you supplement that with your word which gives us a story of redemption it gives us a story of salvation It gives us a story of how we live and behave in this world with Christ. It gives us a definition of morality, of truth. And it tells us how to deal with those folks who may disagree with us, that we deal with them in love, but that we stand firm. Lord, may we all fall in love with Scripture, fall in love with the Bible, so that it becomes part of our everyday lives Thinking and vocabulary. It's your name we pray. Amen.